0: may be seated this morning. As you're being seated, if you have a little one that would like to go to Children's Church, Miss Rachel and Amanda are there to serve us this morning in that role, and we're grateful for their leadership in that department. Man, what in the singing good this morning? Can we just thank our music ministry? Man, they have... Uh, They have been working hard to put all that together in the midst of a pandemic, and man, what a great morning, and and this is just the beginning, so we're excited about that. And I'm thankful that all of the people you saw singing here are going to do it again in the next service, so we're we're going to get to worship all over again. So if you really enjoyed it, you can come back. I know you'll want to hear the sermon twice, so you can come back. Uh, And be a part of that. While our children have made their way out, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament. We began last week a sermon series through this great book in the Old Testament, Nehemiah. We entitled the sermon series simply Rebuild. The story of Nehemiah is one of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, physically rebuilding them. But it's also the story of rebuilding the people of Israel rebuilding lives that have been scattered rebuilding those that had uh, disobeyed and fallen away rebuilding a love for god's word and a heart for prayer it's about god doing a work in people's lives you know as i told you last week we are a people that are constantly in need of do-overs and start agains and rebuilding we need do-overs and start agains in our marriages in our families we need them in our christian walk we need them in our pursuit of god we We need do-overs in our public witness from time to time. There's always areas of our life where we could use a rebuild. And we begin looking at Nehemiah thinking about how does God rebuild our lives? How does God shape us and form us? And so this morning we continue our journey through this idea of rebuilding by looking at chapter 2. And I would say to you this morning that to rebuild, to start over, to begin again with God last week, Uh, We learned the idea that it begins with prayer. This week we will see that it has to do with trust and obey. We must trust and obey. Just to finish the thought that's running through your head. For there's no other way, right? We must trust and obey. Those of you that are not sure, that's an old hymn there. But we must trust and obey the Lord. We will see in Nehemiah chapter 2 that Nehemiah trusts God and then does what he's supposed to do. He acts by faith. On the words of the Lord, on what the Lord has called him and commanded him to do. Nehemiah chapter 2. Will you join me there as I read it to us this morning? Again, we'll look at the whole chapter like we did last week. There's only 20 verses, but it's a, it's a narrative story, so we've got to get it all in to understand the picture of what's happening. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nicaea, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, "'Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart.' Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, "'Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire?' Then the king said to me, "'What are you requesting?' So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the providence beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make me beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for a house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Can we just stop there and say amen? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Now look at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Samballat and the, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I rose in the night and I had a few men with me and I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by the night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I'm at verse 14. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under the pass. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And all the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision." And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray once more. Father, help us. Help us see why this story some thousands of years old matters to us. Help us see the truth from this text that, like Nehemiah, if you are to rebuild our lives, if you're to rebuild where we are, if you're to help us along, we must trust and obey you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin now in chapter 2 with Nehemiah making his request. You'll recall, just by way of history, that chapter 1 begins with us knowing that Nehemiah is serving in the Persian king's court. Now just to remind you, I'm not going to go all the way back through the Old Testament. If you missed that, you can go and watch last week's sermon and hear a summary of where we are. But just to remind you, about 140 years before this, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem as the Babylonian king and destroys it. He burns it to the ground. He raises the walls to the ground. He burns the Temple of Solomon to the ground. And he takes the Jewish people, the bright, the strongest, and he brings them into exile. This is the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And he disperses them all over his kingdom. Well, 140 years later, the Persians are now in control and Artaxerxes is the king. And Artaxerxes is being served by Nehemiah, one of those Jews that's been in exile because of the lineage of what Nebuchadnezzar had done. And so, if you were to read the book of Ezra, which comes right before this, the Bible will tell you that Ezra was allowed to go back by Cyrus, one of the first Persian kings. They're allowed to go back to their homeland. They're allowed to rebuild Jerusalem. I I told you last week that the Babylonians' way of conquering the world was to crush you and disperse you. The Persians' philosophy of world government was to let you have your culture and your way, but then rule over you and tax you. Much like we see the Romans in the New Testament trying to let people have their own places, But yet, being in control. So the Persians were letting them go back and rebuild. Ezra goes back about 15, 20 years before Nehemiah and rebuilds the temple. Though not in the splendor of Solomon, he rebuilds the temple. They have a place to worship. Yet, we find out in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 there, that a brother from the homeland comes back and Nehemiah says, What's going on? How's it going? How's the rebuilding of the walls? He learns in Nehemiah chapter one that the walls are not being rebuilt, that it's a shame, that it's a sham, that the glory of God is not being seen, that the goodness of God is not going from the city on the hill, Jerusalem, God's city, the Zion, where the world is to see the gospel. It's nothing but shambles. And so Nehemiah is stricken to the heart. We learn in chapter one that he will fast and pray for four months. For four months, he's been fasting and praying. And then in chapter two, we find that he begins to make his move. He begins to start the plan of how to get God's walls back up from the ground. And in chapter 2, we see him being obedient and trusting the Lord. I want to give you this morning three ways in which you must be obedient and trust the Lord. We find them in Nehemiah's text. First, uh, to trust and obey God, you must be patient. To trust and obey God, you must be patient. Now, we are none uh, none of us are good at being patient. We might be good at being patient for something we want. Like if we, if we want to get that ice cream scoop, we might wait in line because it's something that we want. But other than that, we're, we're not very good at being patient. In fact, the old adage is in the Christian life is don't pray for patience. The Lord's going to test you, right? He's going to layer it on you in order to teach you patience. We're not very good at waiting. But we find in the first few verses of chapter 2 that that's exactly what Nehemiah did. That he was patient. That he waited that he did what he was supposed to do when the Lord moved him along. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at your text. Chapter 1. Just look at the first four verses. In the month of Nicaea. Now this is four months after the end of chapter 1. Four months he's been fasting and praying. It's not like he heard the news of Jerusalem, said, Lord, help me, and ran into the king to ask for something. Four months he's been patiently praying and fasting and looking for clarity. We find that in that year, uh, when it was time, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now notice this sentence because it's important. Now I had not been sad in the presence. For four months he controlled his grief over Israel. For four months he held back the sadness of his homeland. For four months he put on a happy face and went before the king. For four months he went about his... Business, because he was praying and fasting. He did not go out in public with woe is me and have on ash cloth and make himself look tired and weary. He got up and did what he was supposed to do while he waited patiently on the Lord. There's probably a lesson there for us. When we're waiting patiently on the Lord, it does no good to grumble in front of people. It does no good to act poor and solely and sad because we're waiting on the Lord. We do our business waiting on the Lord. Now notice with me what happens. And the king said to me, why is your face seeing you are sick? There is nothing but sadness in your heart. Then I was very much apra- afraid. And I said, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my fathers, the graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now I want you to just kind of get the story for a moment. He's been controlling his emotions. He's been praying. He's been fasting. But now he's gotten the green light. The Lord has told him, now is the time. He has the unction of the Spirit that's been laid upon him that this will be the day he will make his move. And so his move begins like this. He walks in front of the king. He's the servant of the king. He serves the wine. That means he's the head butler. He's pretty close to the king. He's in the inner circle of listening to everything that's going on. He makes sure the king's food is safe. He's trusted advisor to the king when it comes to the things in his household and so he makes his move he goes into the king and he has now his real feelings showing he has now his real grief over what's happened to his homeland he has now the real burden that jerusalem is in trouble that the city has been destroyed so he goes into the king now with this sad face but you got to understand something this is life or death Because in front of the king, in this pagan world of the Persian world, the king was to be worshipped. The king was to be the radiance of joy. The king was to be the center of attention. To be sad in front of the king is to say that the king is not worthy to be happy in front of, and so he's putting his life at risk. And so he's sad in front of the king, and now he has made his move. And the king says, if you'll notice there in verse 2, he says, what's wrong with you? You're not sick. It must be your heart. He has now said, "Uh uh-oh. You must have a wicked heart. You must have a bad heart. Something must be wrong with you. And this is a punishable offense to the king because when you're in the presence of the Persian king, you're not supposed to know anything but joy. You're not supposed to know anything but goodness and happiness. You're supposed to be joyful in the presence of this king because he would consider himself almost a god among people in this pagan world. And so for him to act sad in front of the king is to put his life on the line. This is not just him groveling for attention. This is him walking and trusting the Lord in front of a king that could very easily take his head off at the moment. And so he walks in and he's saddened. But notice what happens the king says to him, why is your face sad? Why is this heart? And notice what he says. I was very much afraid. I'm thankful that he said that. I'm thankful that he put that in there because it reminds me that emotions are real, that we are real people that battle with emotions. We can trust the Lord. We can obey the Lord, but that does not mean we won't feel anxious does not feel we won't feel nervous. It does not feel we won't feel fear. It does not mean that our feelings won't rise up inside of us. The feelings are a blessing of the Lord, but they are affected by sin. And sometimes our feelings can lie to us. And so he commits it. I was afraid. I was nervous. And so notice what happens. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now that's just a moniker you would say to the king. That's just a statement that you would begin your sentence. Let the king live forever forever that's that's how it would begin i'm trying to implement this in my house that when my killers want something for me they have to say may daddy be awesome forever (laughs) it's not working it's not going over well but the idea is is they just let the king live forever he's he's humbly submissively coming before the authority that god has put over him he says let the king live forever and then notice what he does He's so wise, Nehemiah. You can tell he's been praying. Notice what he does. He says, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Did you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say Jerusalem. He didn't say the city's name because the pagan king in Persia cares nothing about Jerusalem. It means nothing to him. He cares nothing about that city. But anybody would care about your ancestral home. Anybody would care about the death of a family if he's really Nehemiah's trusted friend. If Nehemiah's made his way into the presence of the king and Nehemiah, with all of his emotions and all of his brokenness, would say to the king, King, I'm really upset because my homeland is in trouble. My ancestor's in trouble. The the place where my family is buried is struggling. Nehemiah uses tact and wisdom and diplomacy as he speaks to the king. My mama would put it this way, you catch more flies with honey he's coming in sweet he's coming in right he's coming in wise he's showing us that he's been praying and fasting for four months he ain't coming in hot with all kind of opinions he's coming in with clarity he's pulling at the king he says may the king live forever and then i want you to notice something because it's paid off listen to what the king says then the king said what are you requesting the king didn't say i'm going to cut your head off get out of my presence The king said, what are you requesting? We see in that one sentence that the patience of Nehemiah has paid off. The years, or excuse me, the months of of praying and fasting and seeking the Lord have led to this moment where he steps out on faith in front of this king, this pagan king. He trusts the Lord and he allows his emotions and his heart and the truth to be said to the king. He's out there. Every bit of him is risking his life. He's risking all that he has to utter this statement, I'm sad because my homeland is broken. And he's on pins and needles waiting for the answer And the answer is simply this, what is your request? He's been patient, and God has rewarded him. But I want you to focus on this part here. This is where I see this part really standing out. Notice what it says. So I prayed a prayer to the God of heaven. Now, I I like that sentence, because I've prayed a lot of prayers in a quick moment. Now, most of them were before exams or tests, but I've prayed a lot of quick prayers Lord, help me. I've thrown up some Hail Marys at the last minute in prayer. I I want you to notice this morning, but that's not what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is not throwing up a Hail Mary prayer. Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for four months. He's been banking prayer for four months. He's been on his knees before the Lord for four months. He's been working through this whole situation in his heart in the prayer closet for months. So when the time comes for him to speak to the king, he wants to pray once more. Between the idea of breath, between question and answer, he prays again. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. I want to give you just a couple of truths about prayer when it comes to being patient. When you're being patient with the Lord and you're praying, here's what you should know about prayer. Number one, simply this, prayer is a necessity. When God is trying to rebuild our life, prayer becomes a necessity. Nehemiah will not utter one more word until he prays. He will not say one more thing until he calls out to the Lord. He understands that every decision here forward, every word that is uttered, everything that comes out of his mouth must first be bathed in prayer. Prayer is a necessity to him. You you want God to rebuild your life? You want to trust and obey him? You begin with the necessity of prayer. You begin with seeking the Lord first. Secondly, prayer is always appropriate. It is always appropriate. He doesn't say, uh, let me get back to you after I've gone to church and been to the altar for a couple of hours. He doesn't say, let me run home and get in the closet and I'll come back. He, he doesn't wait for bedtime to kneel down beside the bed and fold his arms and pray. You know about bedtime prayers, right? I'm reminded of the story of Bobby Bowden Who was traveling and recruiting and he was off on the recruiting trail before recruiting was popular and he was driving in a car going from place to place and he ended up in this small town where this boy was being recruited in Mississippi and there was no hotels there was nowhere to stay and so he tells the story that he would stay at the recruits home that while he was there he would stay in the recruits home because that's the only place he would do and he was recruiting this young man and they put him in the bed with his little brother. He said he got into the bed. He had been telling them all day about how he loved the Lord, how Florida State was a place where you could see the Lord, that he loved Jesus, and that would be important to him. And he slipped into the bed, and the little brother that he was sleeping with while he was in the bed, slipped out of the bed and got down on his knees beside the bed. Bobby Bowden said, I felt so convicted. I've been telling them all along that I'm a man of God, that I'm a man of prayer, and here I am, forgot my bedtime prayers. He said he slipped out, got over on the other side of the bed, folded his hands, kneeled down on the bed, and about that time, the little boy looked over at him and said, Mister, what you doing? He said, I'm saying my bedtime prayers just like you. I'm doing what you're doing. Little boy said, I hope not. The peapot's on this side. <laughs> you don't have to just pray at night by the bed. Prayer is always appropriate. Nehemiah knew he must pray. The necessity of prayer. The appropriateness of prayer. I, I want you to see thirdly that prayer should be second nature. It, it was just a reflex for him. It bubbled out of his heart. The king asked him a question, what do you want? I gotta pray about this. There was no second, there was no time. I'm gonna pray. It's a necessity to me. It's part of my nature to pray. We see in this man someone who understands that Jesus tells us to pray without ceasing. That I asked to come before him. He has a heart of prayer. It was a necessity to him. It was a second nature to him. It was always appropriate, I would tell you, I was also intimate. It was an intimate prayer. Why? Because for four months, he's been praying to the Lord. And in the moment where his feet were put to the fire, he turned right back to his Lord. He had a relationship with the Lord that was so intimate. He knew I better consult with my Savior, my God, before I do anything else. I, I, I need to talk to him. Before I make a decision, I've got to speak to the God I'm in relationship with it was an intimate he was confident in his prayer that it would be answered i will give you finally this one he knew prayer was effective he knew prayer was effective it would work god would listen god hears his people god knows what's going on when you're walking through a time of rebuilding of restructuring of do-over you're struggling through some situation or some life you must trust and obey and that's going to mean prayer that's going to mean knowing that prayer is a necessity that it should be second nature and that god will answer and let me show you something neat Look over at chapter 1, verse 11. This is the prayer he's been praying for four months. Four months now he's been praying. Listen to what it says. Verse 11 in chapter 1. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name. And here, listen to this part. And give success to your servant, singular, that's Nehemiah, today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. His prayer for four months was... Lord, let the king receive me well. Lord, let the king have mercy on me. Lord, let the king welcome me in his prayer. Lord, when I show him my feelings and I tell him the plan, please don't let him cut my head off. Let him hear me and receive me. And notice what the king does in the very first few verses. What is your request? Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we pray is because God has been answering our prayers. We go back to prayer because we trust the God who's already answered our prayers. We know that He hears us. Think about your greatest prayer, your most uh, wonderful prayer, the prayer that uh, is top of all prayers. Do you know what that is? I'll simply give it to you. It's the prayer when you said, Jesus, I need you to save me. Jesus, I'm broken without you. Jesus, I am destined for death and hell and the grave. And if it's not for your son and his death, burial and resurrection, I have no hope. Jesus, please save me. And the Bible says in Romans ten thirteen, for whosoever call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Brothers and sisters, if God will answer your prayer for salvation, he'll answer all the others. He will hear you. He cares for you. Nehemiah shows us that in order to rebuild our life the way the Lord calls us to, in order to work through that problem, that issue, that place where we need a do-over, we must trust and obey. And to do that, we begin with patience. We wait, we pray, we ask the Lord, we seek his face, we wait till he tells us the time is right. We we don't run on our own. We wait. Let me give you a second truth about trusting and obeying. Not only should we be patient, uh, but we uh, should also not only be patient, but we should also uh, do our part. We should do our part. He will tell us in the next text that while he's being patient, he's been working. I love the adage. I mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago. There's an old adage that says, uh, let go and let God. I've never fully grasped that. I've never gotten that wrapped around in my head or my heart. I I understand the sentiment of only God can save us. Only we can lay all our burdens at God. Only God can rescue us. There's no one else. But as a believer in Christ, I'm called to do some things. I'm called to work towards some things. God's given me some plans and some things to obey. So so there's never a point in my life where I'm just going to let go and sit back in the recliner and wait for the heavenly sunlight to beam in. I'm going to be about my Father's work. I'm going to do what he's called me to do. And so the next section of this passage, we learn that if God is going to rebuild, if we're going to trust and obey, not only should we be patient, but we should do our part. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at the text. It says in verse 5, after he said, um, And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, sitting in front of the queen, now, we don't know why the queen is there, we don't know why that's included, but there's a couple of ideas. One, whatever the king's about to say has a witness. God is making sure it will be carried out. Or two, maybe Nehemiah's found favor in the queen's eyes and she's helping the story along. The idea here is, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I gave him my time, verse seven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me and the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that it may be given to me timber uh, for beams of the gates of the fortress and the temple and the city walls and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God, was upon me. Now I want you to notice something in this text. When you're thinking about uh, you need a do-over, a rebuild, you're trying to trust the Lord, you're trying to be patient, there's some things you can be doing. And we notice this in the sense of this, Nehemiah had a plan. Nehemiah had a plan. Notice with you, I want you to see three things about his plan. First, I want you to see that his plan was thorough, that it was thought out. Nehemiah had not been sitting idly for four months, just praying, hoping God would somehow open the door. He was doing some work along the way. How do we know this? Because he answered the king's question. "How long will you be gone? Well, we don't know in the text what he says. We know the year is built in less than the, or the wall will be built in less than a year. We know he'll spend 12 years there totally. but the idea is, is that he's able to answer the king. We also know that as he walks up to the king and the king says, "What do you need?" He doesn't go, "Well, uh, uh, I'm not sure. He knows what he needs. I need letters for passage through the country. I need a letter to Asaph because I'm going to need timber and I need permission to cut timber from your forest. I'm going to need a house to live in, verse 8. I'm going to need some timber for the gates and for the walls and for the temple gates. I'm going to need this and this and this and this. Brothers and sisters, can I help you for a moment? Sometimes in our spiritual walk, we want to stop and be stagnant and say we're waiting on the will of God. Can I remind you? that the will of God is clearly revealed in His Word. Can I remind you that God's already told you how to live your life and what to do. Yes, there are moments in your life where decisions need to be made, and you must be patient, and you must wait, and you're praying, and you're fasting. But the will of God is pretty clear in the Word of God. We're told in the Word of God how to love our spouses, how to raise our kids, how to deal with money, how to love our neighbors, how to love our enemies, how to seek first the kingdom of God, how to go and make disciples of all nations. The Word of God tells us what to do. And so Nehemiah, for these moments sitting there, waiting for the king to ask him, he's started doing his work. He started planning. He started preparing. It's not wrong for us to plan while we're waiting on God. It's not wrong for us to dream and think along the way. It's not wrong for us to say, well, Lord, if you're opening this door, I might need to do this and this and this and this. That, that's not out of bounds as long as we're being patient and we're praying. In fact, I would say simply this. Nehemiah has been praying, asking the Lord for these plans. The Bible tells us in the book of James, you lack wisdom because you don't ask. Jesus says you don't have it because you don't ask for it. The idea here is simply this: he's been praying and waiting. In fact, the Proverbs, in Proverbs nineteen two, we find this proverb that helps us. It says simply this, desire without knowledge is not good. Lord, I got a desire to do this, but I hadn't really put any thought into it. I haven't done any planning. One person would put it this way. He would say simply this, all planning starts in prayer. All planning begins in praying to the Lord and asking, Lord, how do you want me to do this? Where do you want me to go? What should I be about? Some of you are struggling to rebuild your life because you haven't put any thought into it. You haven't put any planning into it. You hadn't thought about what I shall do or where I'll go. You're battling some sin, but you hadn't put any thought into how you actually fight it on Monday through Saturday. You're working on a marriage, but you hadn't actually put any thought into a plan to make your marriage better. You're working on some way of defeating sin or moving in some direction, or you want to glorify God in some ministry, but you hadn't stopped to actually think, what do I need to do to prepare for that or how to get there? And this is exactly what he tells us to do. When we trust and obey the Lord, we trust and obey while we plan. Not only will this plan thorough, but secondly, I will notice that his plan was self-sacrificing. Listen to the words that he says in verse six, or verse 5 and 6 and 8. Look at those words. He says, Give me, send me, give me. Now, Nehemiah's plan included himself. Nehemiah's plan for the work of the Lord, including offering himself to the Lord. I hear the words of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Lord, here am I. Send me. He knew that the Lord had something to do, and he volunteered Himself. One of the reasons why our lives don't move forward is because we don't take responsibility and do the work. We don't get involved in what's happening. You, you know, I've been your pastor for 10 years. It's been a joy. I, I love pastoring you as a group of people. But from time to time, a lot of you have good ideas. pastor. somebody ought to. Somebody should. You know, pastor, somebody really ought to be doing this, right? So I'm just going to tell you right now, I've got 10 years under my belt. Here comes my street cred. When you come to me and say somebody ought to, I'm going to say, hey, thanks for volunteering. Amen. Nehemiah didn't volunteer somebody else. He said, I'm ready. Send me. He put himself on the line. You want to rebuild your life, you've got to get some skin in the game. You've got to roll up your sleeves and say, Lord... Send me. I'm ready. Give me a chance. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How can I sacrifice? How can I, how can I produce this? How can I do this? Send me. You know, in the church, we're really good at abdicating that responsibility because we think someone else is doing it. Oh, I don't really need to tithe because those people who have all the money, they're tithing and the church is doing fine. I don't really need to witness. Those people who are really good at talking will witness to people. I don't really need to. I don't need to be a part of the mission trip. Somebody else will go. I'll, I'll take care of that. I don't really need to be involved in Sunday school. There's plenty of people doing Sunday school. I'll, I'll do something else. I don't, I don't really have to be committed to come sing and worship every week because there's that wonderful choir singing, and they'll take care of it. I don't, they don't need my voice in the crowd. We're really good at abdicating and putting off, but Nehemiah says it starts with obeying the Lord, and obeying the Lord means putting yourself in the game. Serving the Lord. I want you to see finally that Nehemiah in his patience. And he was doing his part. I want you to see thirdly that his plans were in the Lord's hands. These plans were in the Lord's hands. Look look with me down now. It says we trust the Lord. We must do our part. We do our part by first thinking through it. By being sacrificing. And then we remind ourselves that the Lord. Look at verse 8. He says these words in verse 8. Oh sorry I lost my place there. verse 8, and the letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to build the beams of the gates and the forest of the temple for the wall of the city and for the house that shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. He knew that when he was doing his part, that the Lord was in it. That the Lord, was on, the Lord was working through him. That he put himself in, Lord, send me, I'll go, I'll do it, I want to rebuild my life, I want to make the effort, I want to do the work, Lord, I'm here. But he also knew that it was the Lord that was behind all of this. That the Lord was working. We see this in two ways in the text. First, we see it because the pagan king got involved. You want to tell me the Lord ain't involved when the pagan king says, yeah, I'll bless you. Take what you need and go. And you know what's even more funny? Nehemiah asked for letters for safe passage and letters to get timber, and the king sent him with an army. Now tell me God ain't good. The king said, hey, on second thought, you know what? I'm going to send you with these letters, and I'll give you some timber, but while you're going, take some soldiers with you. The Lord blessed him above and beyond what he ever asked for so that he may accomplish the task that he has for him. The Lord was in charge of this. He understood as he planned, as he made his plans, that the Lord was in charge. In fact, uh, Proverbs twenty-one twenty reminds us of this. It says in Proverbs twenty-one twenty, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord was in charge of this. All the planning that he made, he knew that God was in charge. We see the Lord's hand in this not only because the pagan king was for him, but we see the Lord's hand in this because the people were against him. You see opposition. You see, brothers and sisters, whenever you start to do the right thing to rebuild your life, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be people against you. Whenever you start working on your marriage and getting serious about doing the right thing with the Lord, Satan's going to come attacking. Gossip is going to whisper in your ear. The greener grass is going to look greener on the other side. And you're going to begin to be pulled away. Whenever the church begins to rally together to do the work of the Lord, to build the walls of the kingdom, there's always going to be opposition. And in the text we find that as soon as Nehemiah put his foot in the land to do the work, opposition came. You need to know, if God is working to rebuild something in your life, it will be a battle because Satan doesn't want it to be rebuilt. Satan wants to tear it down. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He doesn't want it built back up. And so as Nehemiah begins to do the work, opposition comes against him. So we know the plans are right. You better know you're on the right path when Satan's rattling his saber. You better know you're going the right way when opposition of the work of God comes against you. So when we trust and obey God to rebuild our lives, we do it first with patience and then secondly with planning. Now thirdly and finally, I want you to see the third and final truth of how we rebuild by trusting and obeying. And that's simply this. We must keep plowing. We must keep plowing. In Luke uh, chapter 9 verse 62, Jesus says these famous words when he's describing the kingdom of God and who's allowed to follow him and go with him. And here's what he says. He says, Jesus said to them, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's calling disciples out. People are asking, can they follow him? And Jesus is having this conversation. In fact, if you were to read Luke chapter 9, he's kind of drawing a crowd. And there are some in the crowd who say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, I'm not sure where I'm going to sleep tonight. You sure you want to follow me? And Jesus, I'll follow you wherever I go, but let me just wait till I get my mama's inheritance in the text. And so says, let me bury my daddy. But that means I want to get the cash before I follow you. And Jesus says, I'm not sure you're ready. And then one says, well, I'll follow you, Lord. And let me first go say goodbye to everybody. And he says, no, 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 you can't look at your past. You got to come with me. And so Jesus gives this final and beautiful clarifying sentence in Luke chapter 9. Any man Who wants to follow me must put his hand to the plow and not look back. Now, this is an agricultural reference to plowing, obviously. Nowadays, they climb up in the air-conditioned John Deere with the GPS set. They put their headphones in, prop their feet back, and drink a Slurpee while the tractor does all the work. Right? All you farmers just got mad at me. I'm sorry. I know I'm a city boy. My bad. But in those days, you hooked up the team of oxen or the mule and you held the plow in the ground and you made sure the furrows were straight. And if you got to looking around, the mule would go crooked and your corn would be crooked and you would lose crops because your rows were not symmetrically laid out using all of the field. It was... Not good to look back while plowing a field. That's what Jesus is saying. That when you begin the work of God, you must not look back. Listen to me now. Don't miss this. When we trust and obey the Lord to rebuild our lives. And we summon up our part. We've done our planning. We've been praying patiently. And now the Lord tells us to step, to walk, to move by faith. We must do the work. We must move. Forward. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 17 of Nehemiah. He says in verse 17, after he surveyed the wall, after he's got his plan together, he pulls in the Jewish leaders and the people in charge. He gives them the problem in verse 17. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem is in ruins. Its gates are burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem that we will no longer be in derision we won't be laughing stocks we won't be fools in front of the nations we won't be making a mockery of god's kingdom and glory come let us do this he identifies the problem as he's plowing forward uh, secondly he gives them the promise look with me at verse 18 and i told them the hand of god that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and they said let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for the good work he made a promise to them he made a promise that God would be with them. He made a promise that God would help them. He tells them, let's rise up and build, that God's hand was on him. He, he made the promise. And not only does he make the promise, but he fights off the wolves. Look at the last part, verse 19. But when Samballad the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and the servant of Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebuilding against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now notice, they said, hey, do you have the king's permission? He said, oh, I got the king of kings permission. I got the Lord's permission. God's hands on me. You have nothing here. Now I want you to notice something here as you're plowing ahead. I want to give you some wisdom here. I want to help you. As you're plowing ahead to rebuild whatever God's rebuilding in your life, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face the work of Satan. You're going to face the flesh of people. You're going to battle against the things of the dark side. We've been given the armor of God. We know we can handle this. The Spirit of God dwells in us. But I want you to notice the tact that he took against his opposition. When you start plowing, it's going to get hard. When you start trying to do the right thing, it's going to be difficult. When you start trying to work on your marriage or kick that addiction or walk with the Lord or confess that sin or be more involved in the ministry of the church or share the gospel with the neighbor, it's going to get hard. It's going to come up against the kingdom of evil. You're going to face those like Tobiah that are against you. You're going to have that struggle. So notice what Nehemiah does. Let me give it to you quickly. There are three options you can do, and all of them are valid, but I want to show you what he does. The first one is he could have ignored it. He could have ignored it. From time to time, when the opposition comes against us, we just must ignore the opposition. We must not give it a voice. We must walk away. He could have ignored them. He could have kept going on with what they were doing. That's fine. That's a a plan. He could have debated them. He could have sat them down in a chair and they could have went back and forth on why the wall should be built and how the wall and how to prosper everybody, how God is with them, how they're wrong. He could have debated them in public. But friends, let me just say something with you. Many times when we're facing evil that are coming against us, when we're trying to do the right thing and the world is attacking us, debate will do no good. It's the Spirit of God that must fall. And so finally, I want you to see what he did. And here's where you need to stand when you're facing trouble. He called them out. He called them out by the truth of God. He set them straight by the word of the Lord. He did not ignore them because they would just become more of a problem. He did not try to debate them because he didn't want to give them a voice. He called them out by the truth of God. He sat them down in front of all of the people and he said, listen to me. God's hand is in this. This is the will of God. This is the work of God. This is God rebuilding this wall and you have nothing to do with it. Be quiet. Now hear me now. When you're trying to rebuild your life, when you're trying to rebuild your marriage, and you're trying to rebuild your witness, whatever it is that God is rebuilding in your life, whatever adventure you're own, whatever place you find yourself trusting the Lord, here's where you must stand. You must stand on the truth and the promises of God's word. And when the enemy attacks, you must be able to say with the authority of God's word, get behind me, Satan. I'm moving forward with the Lord. He's rebuilding my marriage. He's rebuilding my life. He's rebuilding my family. He's rebuilding my witness. He's rebuilding this. He's bringing this up from the ashes. This is His plan. I've been praying. I've been waiting. I've been training. But this is God's work, And I will not put my hand to the plow of the Lord and look back. I will trust Him and plow forward. Get behind me, Satan. He calls them out. He sets them straight. And he says, this is the work of a good God. When we want God to rebuild our life, we must trust and obey. We must work. We must go about it. Some of the reasons why maybe you're not getting past the sin that you keep struggling with is you're really not doing very good planning. You want to know how to beat the addiction that grabs you on Friday night when you're alone? Make a plan not to be alone on Friday night. You want to know how to uh, get in a better routine of worshiping the Lord? Get somebody to pick you up for church on Sunday so you don't sleep in and skip it. You, you want to understand how to do it. You, you want to know how to fix your marriage? Find a Christian counselor and get some help. Gather some people around you to pray with you. Do the work. You see, we learn from Nehemiah chapter 2 that Nehemiah sought the Lord and prayed and was patient and waited. But he also rolled up his sleeves and he did the work. He put his hand to the plow and he did the work you want to know why your quiet time doesn't work very well you don't have one you want to know why you're not very good at praying you're not doing it roll up your sleeves and go to work where are you in the rebuilding process maybe you're in stage one of trusting obeying lord i got a big decision i got a big issue i got a big problem i need to be patient and pray god teach me i need your wisdom lord Maybe you're in step two. Lord, I I feel you're heading me this direction. Help me start to plan it right. Which person do I need to get wisdom from? Which family do I need to get my life around so that I can understand something better? What education do I need? What Bible training do I need to have? What counselor do I need to see? Help me make a plan, Lord. And then finally, Lord, I've got the plan, I've been praying. Give me the fortitude to put my hand to the plow and not look back. God, rebuild my marriage, rebuild my home, rebuild my witness, rebuild my fight against the temptation of sin. God, help me. I want to follow you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we learn from Nehemiah chapter 2 that we are to trust and obey you. We learn from the sweet refrain of the song that there is no other way. Lord, I pray this morning for the people under the sound of my voice that they would trust and obey you. For some, today, trust means stopping and being patient and praying. Quit trying to solve it, but fast and pray. Seek your face. Find your will. For some... Trusting, obeying means doing what they're supposed to do. Not being paralyzed, but following the plan. Lord, for some, rebuilding means rolling up their sleeves and doing the work. God, I pray this morning, whatever walls need to be rebuilt in the lives under my voice, you would press in on their heart. They would meet you in God's word. They would know what you're calling them to. They would trust and obey. Father, I pray by the power of the Spirit, you would apply the truths where they land in each heart. Lord, give us the unction to do what's right. Give us the strength and the steadfastness to put one foot in front of the other. Lord, help us stop looking and volunteering other people. Let us raise our hand and say, God, send me. Give me, I'll do it. Lord, help us. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I'm I'm asking you, I'm praying for you, I'm begging you. Is your life built on the Lord? Are you following Him? If you have your hand to the plow? Are you going the right way? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I, I don't even know where to start. I need somebody to tell me how to start building my life on the Lord. Friend, that starts with Christ, and I'd love to tell you about it. Maybe this morning you're here and say, our our marriage is is really on a a thread, and and I need somebody to help me plan. We need a plan. We need a place to pray. We we need somebody who will hold the plow with us. Oh, may the the people of God rally to your side. Maybe you here this morning and say, Pastor, man, I'm just struggling with this sin. This sin just pops up. It trips me up. It knocks me over. I'm, I'm falling all over it over and over and over. You need help. You need a better plan. You need to do the work. Friend, whatever the case may be, I, I pray this morning you'll leave here trusting and obeying the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. If you want to come and pray at this altar, you're more than welcome to. If you want to pray with me, I'd be glad to pray with you. Lord, help us to trust and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing this morning?